But it turns out that all of the proteins that are in the synapses that make the synapse do everything that they do, all of those proteins first evolved before the brain, before multicellular organisms. They evolved in unicellular organisms that have lived on the planet for several billion years before the first multicellular animal. So this tells us then that the fundamental molecular machinery of the behavior of the human brain is actually fundamental molecular machinery of behavior in unicellular organisms. And some of those molecules go all the way back to the last universal common ancestor, which is about three and a half billion years ago on the planet. Brain Science, the podcast where we explore how discoveries in neuroscience are helping unravel the mystery of how our brain makes us human. I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell, and this is episode 176. If you're curious about how your brain really works, this is the podcast for you. Before I tell you about today's guest, Dr. Seth Grant, I want to remind you that you can find complete show notes and episode transcripts on my website at brainsciencepodcast.com. Brain Science is produced independently by me and relies on the financial support of listeners like you. To learn more, please visit brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations. Please feel free to send me feedback at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com or post voice feedback at speakpipe.com forward slash Doc Artemis. You can also post to the Brain Science Podcast fan page on Facebook. I want to take just a moment to reflect on why I'm still creating this podcast after nearly 14 years. It might surprise you to hear that I'm not a neuroscientist, so you might wonder what makes me so passionate about this field. First, I believe that science is the most powerful tool humans have for understanding the world, and neuroscience is an important tool for understanding why we behave the way we do. It also reveals our close relationship with other living beings on this planet. But neuroscience is a huge field, which means I can't hope to cover everything. Instead, I try to focus on the big questions and topics that I find personally relevant. I also constantly strive to make the material accessible to listeners of all backgrounds. This month's episode is more technical than most, so I hope you will feel free to listen to it more than once. And of course, I will summarize the key ideas after the interview. As I mentioned, I'd like to focus on the big picture, but ironically, today's guest, Seth Grant, trained as a molecular biologist, and he has spent decades making surprising discoveries about the structure of the synapse, which is about as basic as things get. You might imagine that scientists already know everything about what happens in this structure, but just like physicists continue to make new discoveries about the fundamental structure of matter, neuroscientists continue to learn more about the structure and function of neurons at the molecular level. As Dr. Grant explains in today's interview, these discoveries may lead not only to a better understanding of diseases like schizophrenia, but more scientific treatment options. 
Because this is Dr. Grant's fifth appearance on brain science, we will also discuss some of the early discoveries that led to his most recent work. So let's jump right in. So Seth Grant, it is great to have you back on Brain Science to tell us about some of your most recent research. But since this is your fifth appearance on Brain Science, I think it's important that we give our listeners some context. Great. Well, it's very, very nice to be back. Where would you like to start? Well, I was thinking you could start by sharing just a little bit of your own personal journey. So my personal journey really begins um, as from Australia. I was born in Australia and uh, I ended up doing all my schooling there in the, both high school and uh, secondary education where I went to medical school. But it was um, during uh, my time in medical school that I, I got exposed to doing medical research. And, and as soon as I had finished my medical internship in Sydney, I was offered a postdoctoral position at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York, where I began to work on genes and cancer and using technology that was state of the art at the time, which was to engineer the mouse genome to modify the genetic complement of the mouse. And this was a wonderful way to then test how any given gene works in the biology of a mammalian vertebrate organism. And it was with that sort of technology that I then, after finishing at Cold Spring Harbor, my postdoctoral work there, I moved to Columbia University and I worked with Eric Kandel, who later went on to win the Nobel Prize in 2000. And in Eric's lab, I introduced this mouse technology and we began studies on genes involved with learning and memory. And in 1992, published a paper where we studied four genes. Another lab in MIT, Susumu Tonegawa's lab, published a gene as well that year. And that was really the beginning of mouse genetics using genome engineering methods and uh, the study of behavior. And it's really been one of the most important ways behavior has been understood at the genetic level now over many, many years. And since that time, I've moved to the UK in 1994, and I've been here ever since. And I have worked in Edinburgh University for many years and also at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute in Cambridge. So first, just to put this timing into context, in 92, when you were doing this work, this is before the Human Genome Project was completed, correct? That's right. In fact, I remember at the time, the Human Genome Project was only really starting in the same building where I worked. Uh, Jim Watson had his office. And it was at that time, he was uh, spending a lot of time in Washington pushing the idea of the Human Genome Project against a lot of resistance, as I recall. But the Human Genome Project really started to deliver the goods around year 2000. And at that time, I was uh, working in the United Kingdom. How did your personal interest in schizophrenia impact or influence your work? I have had a long-standing interest in schizophrenia, and I suppose you'd look at it in two ways. One is the personal, and the other is from the scientific. And I'll, I'll mention the scientific first. It always fascinated me as a medical student that schizophrenia was thought disorder. And it sounded as though by studying schizophrenia, you might find your way into understanding really the mechanisms of how complex thoughts work. So that was a very intriguing idea. 
But at a personal level, I had an auntie with schizophrenia who uh, I really didn't know, but um, she, I met her in an institution. She'd been institutionalized her whole adult life. And she was a bit of a zombie when I saw her in the nursing home. And unfortunately, uh, my cousin, who was my same age as myself when I was working in the United States, developed uh, schizophrenia and he also died at a, at a young age. And so I was very affected by that. And I've been very interested in understanding uh, schizophrenia and have always had an interest in that and have actually done quite a bit of work on that over the years. It seems like oftentimes when, when your papers come across to clinical applications, schizophrenia appears. And I know that's not just because of your personal interest. It's also because of the genetic knowledge that we do have about schizophrenia. But I just wanted to, to start with that just as a, as a touch point. Could we just kind of do an overview of the major discoveries that you've made sort of prior to the current paper? In other words, lead us through how you got to where you are now. Yeah, I'll just give you a, a quick overview. In fact, I gave a lecture last week at the Federation of European Neuroscience, which was for a particular prize I was awarded, and it was a sort of a career prize, and it gave me an opportunity to reflect a little bit on it. But um, as I mentioned a moment ago, a key point was to understand the importance of the gene in behavior. And it was through these gene transgenic mouse studies done at Columbia University in 1992 that really gave us a first handle on, does this gene control this behavior and what is the physiological mechanism? And it really goes right to the very most fundamental level of science in biology, which is at the level of the gene. So that was a key uh, stepping stone. But uh, really a major transition that completely changed the way I think about the nervous system occurred in the late 1990s. And in the year 2000, uh, as a result of work we were doing, we published a, a paper which has become a bit of a landmark. And it was that we used uh, mass spectrometry to characterize the proteins in synapses. Now, the reason this work was interesting was because over the 1990s, there was a general model of synapses, which was that they contained very few proteins and that those few proteins that were known, which you could count on one hand, more or less, were sufficient to produce synaptic transmission and synaptic plasticity. And people thought that could account for learning. And it was almost like job done. But it wasn't like that at all. What we found was that on the postsynaptic side of synapses, which for the listeners, is that side of the synapse where information first comes into a nerve cell. That's why it's so important. It's the critical place where information is first processed. But on that postsynaptic side, by using this proteomic mass spectrometry method, we identified 10 times the number of proteins that were previously known, which suddenly revealed a very much unexpected complexity. Quite a lot of people at the time thought that it was some sort of artifact. In fact, it wasn't. In fact, it was only one-tenth as complex as what it turned out to be because over the subsequent years, over the next decade, we found another tenfold more proteins and many labs have confirmed this now. But essentially inside a synapse on the postsynaptic side, you can have more than a thousand types of proteins in a synapse. It's very much more complicated. 
And so this really changed the way of thinking from the synapse just being a, people say it's a connector in the nervous system. Well, that's not a very nice way to talk about a synapse because it's in fact a super sophisticated molecular computer. Inside any single synapse is somewhere in the order close to half a million or a million different protein molecules. And they're all assembled into these multi-protein machines, which undergo molecular changes, conformational changes, chemical changes over the course of milliseconds and seconds, and are computing information in the patterns of nerve cell activity. And then they produce outputs from that highly complex signaling network that are absolutely vital for all of our behaviors, our innate and learned behaviors. And so this idea that synapses were very complex uh, was a conceptual change. But one of the things we recognized at that first paper in the year 2000 was that three of the proteins that we had studied and identified in synapses, which had previously had no link to synapses at all, turned out to be encoded by genes which were the cause of human genetic brain disorders. And it occurred to me then that, well, maybe these synaptic proteins are going to be very important in various human diseases. And this was pretty much a new thing at the time. In fact, I'm not sure there were any other proteins known before that in the brain that when mutated caused human behavioral disorders. But over the next 10 or 15 years, we've done a lot of genetic and proteomic studies, and basically using our sets of proteins, which we and many labs have now used, you can find that there's hundreds of proteins that are affected by gene mutations, and those mutations all affect the proteins in the synapses. So those include schizophrenia, depression, all these common sorts of disorders, plus about a hundred other rare genetic disorders. So synaptic disease, if you want to think of it, is really a very big concept these days. Schizophrenia is thought of now as essentially a synaptic disease. And that's all come about by knowing the knowledge, uh, having the knowledge of the different proteins that are in the synapses and linking it back to the genes. The same kind of thing we were doing in the mouse genetics in the early 1990s. So in other words, mutations in mice are important for behavior, mutations in humans are important for behavior, and many of those mutations act through the synaptic proteins that those genes encode. So that was, I think, a major contribution to understanding brain disease. But there was another really fun angle, and I know we've talked about this before, uh, Ginger, which was that these proteins gave us an opportunity to study the evolution of synapses and the evolution of the brain in a way that hadn't been done before. And essentially, it was because of the advances in the genome projects, the human genome, the genomes of many, many different other animals, allowed us to ask simple questions like, well, when did all of these synapse genes evolve? When did they first evolve? And have they changed? Are they different between different species? Well, this is where we've got some fabulous surprises, which have been really so interesting. And the first one is this. Synapses, we think of them as being parts of our nervous system and all these very sophisticated, complex animals have them. Well, yes, they do. But it turns out that all of the proteins that are in the synapses that make the synapse do everything that they do, all of those proteins first evolved before the brain 
Before multicellular organisms, they evolved in unicellular organisms that have lived on the planet for several billion years before the first multicellular animal. So that's really interesting because what it shows is that those proteins must have been under natural selection and under and they've been uh, they've evolved in the unicellular universe that existed. So what is it that they do in those organisms? Well, amazingly enough, it turns out that those proteins are controlling the behavior of unicellular organisms. They control how they adapt and respond to their environment. They're involved how they sort of you know learn in response to their environment. So this tells us then that the fundamental molecular machinery of the behavior of the human brain is actually fundamental molecular machinery of behavior in unicellular organisms. And some of those molecules go all the way back to the last universal common ancestor, which is about three and a half billion years ago on the planet. So these are very ancient molecular mechanisms in our synapses that we have in our brain today, and they've been used by a huge range of different organisms to control their behavior. And I think that's a beautiful thing because it shows there's a sort of a unity to the sort of cognitive processes amongst all of these different organisms. Now, there was another little surprise amongst all of this, which was that in the year 2008, when we characterized this phenomenon, we were very surprised. And the phenomenon was, was as follows. When we look at the proteins in mammals or vertebrate species, we find that there's a lot more of them than what there are in invertebrate species. So how could that be? And we didn't know at the time, but in the same year, another lab published something which is a quite remarkable piece of biology. It is that there is the genomes of some animal that was the ancestor of all of the vertebrates on the planet. That animal underwent an entire genome duplication event. It, it, the biggest mutation of the ball, it inherited an extra copy of its entire genome. And one of its descendants sometime after that did the same thing all over again so that it duplicated its genomes two times. So as a result, this animal then had essentially four copies of the genome more than the invertebrate ancestor. And it is then that organism which gave rise to all the vertebrate species on the planet. And that's why vertebrates have much more complex genomes because they've had these genome duplication events. They have more genes in all gene families. And as a result of that, you have more synapse proteins as we characterized in the uh, vertebrate synapses. And what all of these proteins do, and we've done genetic experiments to show this, they give the animals a more complex behavioral repertoire. And that is a wonderful thing because it just shows you how by this gene mutation, we can suddenly take a simple organism, relatively speaking, an invertebrate, and by making greater molecular complexity through gene duplication events, you can produce much more sophisticated and diverse behavioral repertoire, which is the characteristic of the vertebrate organism. So again, that was one of the secrets that was uncovered by looking at these synapse protein lists. And our most recent direction, which is something which leads up to the paper today, is to address something that is really, I think, a fascinating new area. And it's, it's really kind of simple. 
As I had learned during all of my sort of neuroscience training, the brain has synapses and there's excitatory synapses and there's inhibitory synapses. And then there's a few other ones sort of specialized for dopamine or serotonin and so on. And so there's a handful of various types of synapses that are out there. And of course, the human brain has a vast number of those synapses, somewhere in the order of a a million billion or something like that. So a huge number of synapses. It's really the hallmark of the nervous system of humans and indeed other vertebrates. It's the vast number of synapses that is so interesting and so special about the brain. Here was the thing. On one hand, we have large number of synapses. But on the other hand, from the molecular biology, we have a large number of proteins in the synapses. And we had thought that maybe these synapses have all the same proteins. That was the sort of assumption that everybody had in the field. But it wasn't to be the case. We started to uncover evidence that these synapse proteins are not distributed the same across all synapses. Some parts of the brain, some proteins are found. Other parts of the brain, other proteins are found. And that was giving us this clue that there could be this synapse diversity at a level that we hadn't really thought of before. But really, I think a key breakthrough was to develop methods whereby we could examine the proteins inside individual synapses and not just look at the odd synapse under the microscope, which requires a very high magnification microscope, but to use a microscope that can survey very large numbers of synapses. And then you can look at each and every one of those many synapses and start to develop and build a catalog. And in that way, you can truly systematically understand the diversity of synapse types in the brain. And so in 2018, we published a paper, which was the first time anybody had done a sort of a brain-wide survey of synapse diversity using genetic molecular marking, using our mouse genetic engineering methods, and then these sophisticated new microscopy methods, and combining that with some machine learning and image analysis methods. And with those sorts of approaches, we found that there was much more synapse diversity than we had previously anticipated. And by the way, we now call synapse diversity of the brain, it's called the synaptome. It's like the word genome. Genome is all of the genes that an animal has. The synaptome is all of the synapses that an animal has. But just like the genome, genes are not randomly distributed on on the chromosomes. They're organized, they have an architecture. And it turns out that synapse diversity has an architecture. And we find that different types of synapses are found in certain parts of the brain and they have certain proteins and other types of synapses are found in other parts of the brain. And this is something we call the synaptome architecture of the brain, the sort of spatial distribution of these different synapse types. And one of the really amazing things about these pictures, which I might say are really very, very beautiful pictures because we have these sort of multicolored pictures. It's like a garden of flowers. Imagine you have this gigantic garden where every synapse is like a colored flower and you look across it and they're not randomly distributed. There's certain areas where there's lots of red ones and green ones and areas where there's lots of mixtures of them, like some extraordinary sort of garden. That's how the synaptome architecture uh, looks in the brain. And interestingly, those parts of the brain, which are those important for higher cognitive functions, you know, intelligence, so to speak, in the cortex and the hippocampus, those are the parts of the brain where you find the most diverse 
types of synapses or flowers. It's really, it's telling us something important. It's saying, gosh, having all those different types of synapses is probably giving very sophisticated computation to the brain circuits, which is why they're involved with these complex behaviours, you know, language, etc., speech, and, and of course, memory uh, processes. And so this link between the molecular complexity on one hand and now the synapse diversity on the other hand is really just showing you there's this basic molecular and genetic program that has built this diversity and complexity across the brain, which we can see in these three-dimensional maps. Again, we go back to the disease story again. I told you earlier how so many of these genes and the proteins are involved with diseases. One of the great puzzles of diseases is which part of the brain do they affect and why do they affect that part of the brain? And this is where our synaptome architecture comes in because we find that different genes encode different proteins which are in different synapses which are then located in different parts of the brain. These maps we make of the brain, which are called synaptome maps, are a kind of a roadmap that allows you to go from the gene mutation to the circuit or the part of the brain that is affected. And there's a very simple logic that connects all of that together. And so we've shown in a variety of experiments that the gene mutations produce alterations in particular circuits, and we can link various sort of genetic diseases to the circuits simply by looking at the distribution of these proteins and their synapse diversity. In this um, recent study that we've just published in Science, we have asked questions about how this synapse diversity and the synaptome architecture changes as a function of age. Now, before I tell you about that, what I want to just sort of say here is that simply by studying the basic molecular building blocks of synapses and asking where they are, you can understand and find this architecture of the brain we have been able to link that to behavior. I haven't said much about that so far because the molecules in the synapses control the electrophysiological properties of the synapses. And as everybody knows, it's the electrical signals that are traversing the brain. And every time they come to a synapse, they produce a synaptic response. And that is governed by the proteins in it. So now if you have lots of synapses, as we do, that are very diverse, because they have different molecules in them, then when a pattern of activity comes into each of those different synapses, you will get different synaptic responses in different synapses in different parts of the brain. And suddenly when you realize that, you suddenly recognize that maybe synapses can be storing information in their molecular composition and in a sense storing a representation of the outside world. And with our colleagues, we have studied how that works, show that molecular composition and diversity of synapses is a way of encoding information in the brain. And that's a very important new concept, I believe. And that importantly, it's very simple to recall the information because every synapse is different uh, or has a different composition. And so each synapse is uh, sort of uh, like a zip code. Its molecular composition is like a zip code where it's that's synapse with one set of molecules will be preferentially activated by a particular set of neural impulses. 
and another synapse will be, will be activated by a different set of neural impulses. So when neural impulses come into your brain, synapses recognize and distinguish them. They read them in a way that then produces an output. So, you know, this molecular composition is a way of encoding information about our behavior. This month, Brain Science has a new sponsor, Green Chef. Green Chef is a USDA-certified organic company that provides a wide range of meal plans, including plant-powered, keto, paleo, and balanced living. All you have to do is pick the one that's right for you, and the ingredients are delivered to your door with easy-to-follow step-by-step instructions. You get the satisfaction of cooking a wide variety of flavorful recipes without the stress of meal planning, grocery shopping, and most of the prep. I've used Green Chef for several years because it allows me to follow a low-carb diet and still have plenty of variety. Just use the code GINGER80 to get $80 off your first month, plus free shipping on your first box. Go to greenchef.com forward slash ginger80 to redeem and for more details. That's $80 off your first month plus free shipping on your first box at greenchef.com forward slash ginger8080. When you have a genetic disorder, your synapse diversity and your synaptome map changes and that produces behavioral changes. So this molecular model that we've been working on can explain how different behaviors arise from the different synapse diversity in different parts of the brain and when the mutations affect that. So by extension, you might ask the question then, well, does that mean then that the composition of synapses and their diversity changes as a function of age? Now, we all know that humans, and in fact, every other animal, goes through a stereotypical trajectory of lifespan behavioral changes. So when a baby is born, a human baby is born, they have a very limited set of behavioral resources. Their repertoire of behaviors is very few, but they rapidly over the course of months and years develop an increasingly complex behavioral repertoire. They also go through phases, famously made by, described by Piaget, but many other people too. And so there's a sort of progression and increasing complexity and increase in ultimately in many cognitive functions, which is described by intelligence, which in, reaches its peak in young adults around about sort of early 30s. And then after that, throughout the middle ages of human life, we sort of don't change too much, but then there's gradual sort of decremental changes out into old age. And these lifespan trajectories have been well documented before. But the question is, why do we even have them? How do they actually come about? And of course, we know that certain behaviors are changing a lot at different ages too. This could be interesting in terms of synapses. And so in this paper that we've just published, we measured the synaptome and the synaptome architecture from birth until old age in the mice at many different time points. And we found that there was a remarkable set of changes across the lifespan. The synaptome map of the brain and its architecture changes at 
every age throughout life. In other words, our brain is always changing. It's never the same. In fact, we can look at the maps of the brain and we can tell you pretty much how old the animal is simply by looking at the maps. Then you ask yourself, well, in what way does it change? Well, one of the first things was to look over the first few months of life of the mouse, which would be the equivalent of the first few decades in the human. And during that time, there was a remarkable explosion of synaptic diversity. So just as the behavioral repertoire was very limited in the newborn animal, so was the synaptic diversity. Fits very well with our earlier work about complexity and diversity being linked to behavioral complexity and diversity. And so a newborn animal has very few types of synapses, but over the first month or so of life, they get a huge number of increases in the different types of synapses. But it's not just the types of synapses, they become distributed into the different regions of the brain and every part of the brain gradually takes on its own synaptome composition. Its synapse diversity is different in different parts of the brain. And that evolves over those first few months of the mouse life. And as a result of that, the different areas of the brain differentiating from one another. That's a very interesting phenomenon because it is known that the behaviors of the organism differentiate from one another as the animal matures. But then, as far as aging was concerned, we saw some very interesting and striking changes. Firstly, we saw, as people have said before, that there's actually a loss of synapses as the animal gets very old. But more interesting than that, we saw changes in the synapse composition with aging. There are certain types of synapses that appear to be sort of resilient to aging. They last more, but there's others that appear to be vulnerable. They disappear more quickly. And so the synapse composition of the brain changes with age. And it also changes in different brain areas at different rates as one gets older. This is all very intriguing because it suggests that the brain organization is changing as a function of age. And we did this analysis where you can combine all ages and all areas of the brain together. And when we do that sort of analysis, we find that as the brain gets older, the specializations in the different brain areas, they kind of de-differentiate. The brain, in a sense, kind of becomes simpler at this sort of global level. And in fact, there are certain aspects of the brain that begin to resemble the early childhood brain in the very elderly. At this point, people would like to point out to me, they say, well, that's funny, you know, grandpa begins to resemble a child as he gets older. Now, whether or not that has anything to do with what I've just said, I wouldn't know. But what these studies do show is that there is a trajectory in the lifespan of the synaptome architecture that matches very well with what is described as the lifespan trajectory of behavioral changes. Again, very consistent with the idea that it's the molecular organization of synapses that are really the controlling the behavioral repertoire and that there are these age-dependent genetic programs that are controlling your diversity of synapses at any given age and hence your behavior at any given age. And so that's really the thrust of that um, most recent work, Ginger. What's the significance, do you think, of the fact that the synapses also get larger? I think what we're looking at there It's a little bit of a survival of the fittest job in the sense that they appear to get larger because it's the largest ones that are surviving the longest. 
So the smaller ones are being lost. And so that's behind this sort of enlargement. That's at least the way that uh, we think it's going on. So again, I think this is really a very key thing because we can now look at that. Let's say we wanted to be very practical about this and said, gosh, you know, I want to find a way to uh, improve cognitive function in the age, in aging, or prevent cognitive decline or something like that. What we could do then is potentially look at these different synapses and measure them in the ways that we do and ask, can we find ways to prevent the loss of these smaller synapses? Or is there a way to influence that, whether it be exercise, whether it be diet, whether it be a pharmacological approach or some other stimulation paradigm? We now would have a way to look at this. And I, and I want to mention one thing here. In this lifespan study, we, we quantified about 5 billion synapses. This is vastly more than what anybody's ever done before. This was the first time anybody had ever mapped the lifespan and atlas of the brain of synapses. And it is because of these highly systematic and powerful methods that we've developed that we can actually do it on this kind of scale. And that's very, very important because if we're going to go forward and test drugs and therapeutics and so on, you don't just want to go in and have a look at a little tiny piece of the brain as is the way most people do it because of technical limitations. But using the sorts of approaches that we've used in our study, we can now do this very systematically. And so we can say, well, did the cortex change? Did hippocampus, did the cerebellum, the thalamus, striatum? and all of these other important parts of the brain, we can look at them all at once. And we can therefore look for general or wide effects, or we can also look for side effects as well. Well, you, you've hit us with an, a lot of information. I think that there's going to be quite a few listeners who will want to go back and listen to that overview again. I want to back up for a minute and ask you to talk a little bit more about the difference between the synapses in different species. I mean, you work with the mouse based on the assumption that there's a lot of similarity between mice and humans. Can you take us back to the invertebrates and then just kind of talk us through how those compare? Invertebrates, vertebrates, mammals, and so on? Yeah, I think this is a very important question because it will ultimately speak to issues of species differences and also therapeutic implications and translational implications. So if one just looks at the protein composition of synapses and says uh, which proteins are there and which genes encode them, it's essentially the same classes of genes. And for the listener, when I refer to classes, I mean neurotransmitter receptors, certain types of signaling proteins, structural proteins. They are all categorized into various classes. The synapses of the invertebrate and the vertebrate contain the same classes of proteins. As I mentioned earlier, the vertebrates have more of each one of the different classes of proteins because of these genome duplication events. So, so far, you'd be saying they have the same kinds of molecules, but there's just quantitative differences in those. But now, the key thing, I think, from the point of view of the synapse diversity is, of course, that mice have far fewer synapses than does a human. And is there something about synapse diversity that's going to be important here? Well, 
At the present time, if you asked me how many types of synapses there are, the answer is I don't know and nobody else does either. <laughs> and it is because we know that the proteins are not distributed equally into every single synapse. Each synapse has a combination of these thousand or more types of proteins. And if you look at the different potential combinations of those proteins, well, it's very easy to have, we've done these calculations. A mouse has about 10 to the power of 11 synapses. That's about 100,000 million synapses in its brain. Even with a small number of proteins, as many as 10 proteins, it's possible to have every one of those, every one of those synapses being different. But as I've already told you, there's more than a thousand types of proteins in there. And they also have other post-translational modifications. So it would be very simple to have a mouse brain where every synapse is actually different. In fact, it could be that it easily could be the case that in the human brain, which is even much bigger, every synapse could in fact be different. Now, we don't think that's the case. We think it's going to be organized. There's going to be abundant classes and non-abundant classes. And some of them might even have, in a sense, redundant functions. Even though they're molecularly different, they might function the same way. But there's certainly plenty of scope for what you might now call species differences in the synapse composition. I wouldn't be at all surprised if it were that there are some types of synapses that are unique to mice and some other types of synapses that are unique to humans, and that there will also be synapses that are found and conserved between the two species. And so it's going to be crucial to look at that, and there are methods to look at that now. That's going to be really very important because so many studies of therapeutic approaches are done using mice, and many of the therapeutic approaches are focused on synapses. In fact, the majority of drugs that are used to treat psychiatric disorders today all target neurotransmitter systems which involve the proteins of synapses. And so understanding human-specific synapses is, uh, I think, a very important and completely unexplored area. I know most of your work is focused on the excitatory synapse. Do we know very much about the difference in terms of the protein composition between the excitatory and inhibitory synapses? Quite a bit known about that, and I think it can be summarized really quite simply. Essentially, the organizational molecular principles are the same. It's just that there's different sets of proteins found in the inhibitory and excitatory synapses. And again, I just want to emphasize these combinatorial principles. There are some proteins that are, uh, in a sense, unique to inhibitory synapses, and there are some that are unique to excitatory synapses, and there's some proteins that are common to either. But actually, once you get down to the detail of that, you'll find all sorts of interesting little exceptions. There are some proteins that are thought to be excitatory only, but in fact, you do find them in some inhibitory synapses. So it's all a big game of combinations of these proteins. But as you've suggested, or as everybody thinks, there are broadly speaking inhibitory and excitatory synapses. And that is a description that's based not on molecular data, it's based on electrophysiological, functional and pharmacological data. But um, it's different combinations of proteins make up this kind of landscape of functional types of synapses. And the excitatory and inhibitory are two big broad peaks. In fact, they're more like mountain ranges because if you think of the Himalayas, for example, and they said, look, the Himalayas are excitatory synapses. Well, there's a heck of a lot of other little peaks in there, which are effectively being the different subtypes of excitatory synapses. 
So in 2018, when you first introduced the mouse synaptome, if I remember correctly, it was based on the distribution of, of a couple of protein complexes, BSD-95 and SAP-102. Is that right? That's right. And your current work also is based on those the distribution of those same protein complexes, correct? That's correct. We use the same methods in our lifespan study, the paper we published in Science, as well the paper where we just looked at one adult time point in 2018. Can you explain why these particular protein complexes were chosen? Yes, they um, are chosen for a whole variety of different reasons to maximize the amount of information that we would obtain. Just to give the listeners a sort of a perspective on it. I mean, you could have said, look, I'll just pick any old two random synaptic proteins and just have a look at them. Now, uh, we didn't do that. We (laughs) chose these two very carefully. The first one is PSD95 and the second one is SAP102. Even though they have slightly sounding different names, they're actually um, essentially, you know, sisters or brothers because those two, the genes encoding those, arose from an ancestral, single ancestral gene before this genome duplication event. There was just one gene in that family in the invertebrate species, but after the duplication event, it produced PSD95 and SAP102, and after the second duplication event, it produced another couple of other proteins, which we have not studied. And so we then, by looking at those two proteins, we're actually now, on one level, we're looking at how vertebrate synapses have evolved. That gives us that piece of information. Now, another reason to look at those two is because we had previously studied their role in electrophysiology and mouse behavior. And each of those two genes have different cognitive functions. They have different electrophysiological functions. And so when we now do synapse diversity mapping, we can now relate the behavioral changes and the physiological changes to the distribution of the different synapses. So that gives us another powerful sort of logical way to analyze the data. And another reason they're interesting is because they have different impact in human psychiatric and neurological disorders. The SAP102 gene, which happens to be on the X chromosome, causes a kind of intellectual disability autism syndrome, particularly in males. And the PSD95 protein, it also causes mutations in that cause of severe intellectual disability, but it also happens to be that it binds a lot of proteins that control schizophrenia. And the PSD95 associated proteins include many schizophrenia risk genes, something we've characterized in previous years. And so looking at the distribution of these informs us about why there are these subtle differences between things like autism and schizophrenia and intellectual disability, which are often described as some sort of continuum or sort of spectrum. That allows us to then, by looking at the spatial distribution of those two proteins, infer information about how those diseases occur and at what time and in what brain circuits. So it's all these types of pieces of information that we put together to um, choose those. And then from our mapping studies, we can then extrapolate all sorts of very interesting findings about brain evolution, because what it shows is that as a result of these genome duplications, we produce new synaptic proteins. And then that was followed, and I say followed, I mean years later, millions of years later, 
by the diversification of synapses. Gene and molecular diversification allowed synapse diversification, allowed behavioral diversification, rise to different genetic diseases with different behavioral phenotypes. That's how you assemble the logic together. Okay, I'm going to need a little clarification just because I, like many of my listeners, aren't familiar with the nomenclature. This BSD95 and and SAP102, those are protein complexes. They're protein. They encode an individual protein by that name, but they happen to be a scaffold protein which bind a set of other molecules into complexes. So when you look at them with the microscope and with a fluorescent tag, you're actually looking at the location of the complexes. Okay, and the genes, because you kind of flipped and flopped in your use of the word gene. The, neither one of these things is a gene. These are protein complexes that you know which gene codes for them. Yeah, just to, let me clarify that for you. <laughs> there is a PSD95 gene that encodes a PSD95 protein, <laughs> and the protein binds others to make a PSD95 complex, and similarly for SAP102. But that's not the way genes are always named, right? They don't always... Not always. No. Okay, so that was what was confusing to me. Okay. Yeah. And there's also, <laughs> another, there's also other names for the PSD95 gene. It's also called DLG4. That's a common genetic name oh, for it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think we actually talked about DLG4 back in, in 2013 when we talked about that experiment with the mice and this thing like the iPad. That's the one, yeah. We talked about the DLG genes. We use that interchangeably. Okay. Thank you. That makes sense. So when we're looking at the synaptome that you have created, it's a map of of these two protein complexes, where they appear. And then you have generated, you might say, a, a dynamic map through the lifespan of the mouse that shows how the distribution changes through the lifespan. That's right. And you talked about how it makes a difference into what you know, areas of the brain, those that involve higher cognitive functions are more complex. And can you talk a little bit about how connectivity changes during the aging? As far as connectivity is concerned, and let's just be clear about how we define that, we're talking about the axons and the dendrites and where they where they extend or project and which ones contact each other. We didn't actually fill the dendrites or the axons in a way that allowed us to see to what extent that actually changes. And that's an interesting question. Let me try to put that into a certain context here. The maps that we made are just of the synapses. So when you look at them under the microscope, you see these little points or puncta. They're dots. And really what you're asking is, how do you join the dots? And we have not done that yet. There are a lot of programs in the world, they're called Connectome Projects, which is essentially aiming to do that, which is they want to define the the wires that connect the synapses. But what we do is we focus on the molecular composition of the synapses. That's why these synaptome and connectome projects are so complementary to one another. And there's no doubt that these are going to converge in the upcoming years. take a moment to remind you about my favorite sponsor, Text Expander, which helps save you repetitive typing by creating snippets that allow you to use these short abbreviations for anything you type often. This saves you both time and also reduces errors. 
Text Expander is available on Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad, and your subscription makes it easy to sync your snippets between all your devices. And if you work with the team, Text Expander can help your team to be more consistent, accurate, and current. Just visit textexpander.com forward slash podcast for 20% off your first year. That's textexpander.com forward slash podcast. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about them on Brain Science. In the paper, you made a reference to changes in functional connectivity and a decrease in small worldness after the age of three months. And I was just wondering what that statement was based upon. The small worldness and topology, they're sort of indices of networks. And, and it's now been known for quite some time that in the biological context, there are many, many examples of what's known as small world networks that follow these power law distributions. The brain shows many examples of such networks at the molecular level, even within the proteins within the synapse, proteins interact and connect with each other. And the molecular networks inside synapses follow a power law distribution and have this small worldness property. And small worldness, just to maybe help, help the listeners just a little bit, Small worldness refers to a network where there are hubs that are highly connected, as there are in the United States, for example. There's a few cities where there are major airport hubs, and each one of those hubs is characterized by the fact that many small and peripheral airports all connect to the hub. So you can get around in the whole network simply by flying to a hub and then perhaps to another hub and then off to your other little airport after that. So it's a way, that's what makes it into a small world. It's only a few steps between any two destinations. And the molecules inside synapses have a small world property. And so does the connectivity of the brain, the connectome, and so does the synaptome. And one of the things that we did was to look at the molecular compositions of all of the many different regions of the brain when you do that, you can draw a graph of their relationships with one another. And from that, you can demonstrate that it also follows a small world kind of architecture. Again, a very sort of common sort of theme in biology. We've been able to show in the past in the 2018 paper that the network properties of the synaptome architecture, and I think this is an important point, they, they correlate with the properties of the functional brain networks, which are measured using something called magnetic resonance imaging, functional magnetic resonance imaging. So what that tells you then is that when people stick their head in a scanner and um, measure something about the brain function, what they're actually reading out in part reflects the synapse diversity and its spatial architecture across the brain. That whole small worldness, the basic concept is easy to get, but past that, it's, for me, challenging. I mean, I've, I've interviewed Olaf Sporns a couple of times, and I think I get the, you know, the big picture. <laughs> but I don't think I could ever do the math. <laughs> the question is, at what point is that a, a really useful concept? And um, like so many of these interesting measures, they can be applied in certain circumstances. Where I find it useful here is because it gives us a, just a, another way to describe 
this sort of global architecture of the brain when one is measuring synaptic molecular composition at individual synapses. And appreciate, of course, that an individual synapse has a volume of about one cubic micron. You know, a hundred of them could fit across a human hair or something. I mean, they're incredibly small relative to the size of the brain. And I think it's just a remarkable thing that by looking at the molecular compositions of those synapses and then mapping them on a large scale in the way that we've done, that you can begin to see this large-scale architecture that can be defined in these mathematical terms, which corresponds very well with what people have looked at using other kinds of descriptions of the architecture of the brain, whether it be connectomes, functional connectomes, or these functional connectomes. I like it just for that usefulness. But in terms of understanding the molecular biology as such, it has got other uses in terms of thinking about which molecules are going to have greatest phenotypes and so on. So it does, it does have utility, but we could probably live without it. Yeah, but I guess it's a reasonable scientific principle to share that the more correlations you have between different methods, the more you feel like you're measuring something real, right? Well, that's right. And, <laughs> and, and one of the reasons we try to make these links is because we want to understand and put our work into a context and, and brain imaging is, I think, something that's worthy of discussion here. Because fundamentally, you're looking in a synaptome map of the brain, you're looking at the molecular organization of the brain on a three-dimensional scale, in the spatial scale, and then, across, of course, across the lifespan, that's a fourth dimension. So you've now got this sort of dimensional data. And if you ask yourself the question, what are the ways to measure that in a clinical setting? And the answer is brain imaging. It is, after all, measuring the three-dimensional properties of the brain. And there are many different types of brain imaging, as I'm sure you and your listeners know. There's structural imaging of varying kinds. There's functional imaging using magnetic resonance imaging or positron emission tomography. And so recognizing there's this commonality between the synaptome architecture and these brain imaging methods, that is to say the three-dimensional problem, we wanted to try to bridge the gap because what we would like to be able to do, having now told you that the architecture of the synaptome is a way to understand how gene mutations and diseases cause diseases in certain types of the, in parts of the brain at different ages, we'd like to try to translate that into a clinically useful tool. And so one way to do that is to find out how brain imaging is measuring the synaptome, or to put it another way, can we use brain imaging to measure the synaptome architecture of the brain? In our 2018 paper, we showed in principle that you could do that. And that's one of the reasons why this network topology stuff came into it. So Seth, is there, what else would you like to share before we close? I think one of the things I haven't mentioned here is that, you know, over the last couple of decades where we've generated these very large molecular data sets and also more recently these molecular atlas data sets, we've made a special effort to disseminate all of this data completely freely on our website and other websites so that people can use it. And it's been very rewarding to see that that has been used, particularly our proteome data sets, which have been used a lot by human genetics groups and that's been very useful, for example, in looking at, you know, these schizophrenia gene enrichments 
We've now learned that schizophrenia is a polygenic disorder and many of the genes infect these, uh, impact on these synapse proteins. And it's been driven by the availability of these lists. And so we feel very strongly about that. We put quite a lot of effort into generating the atlases that are involved. Uh, of course, it's important to say that all of this work is in the, some of these large-scale projects. People say, oh, gosh, you must have some gigantic lab or something, but we don't. We actually have quite a modest-sized lab. That most recent paper on the lifespan study was done with fewer than 10 people, and uh, maybe we could have done it faster if we had more investment. But um, it really comes, all of these different projects at one time or another have been driven by, you know, really sort of key individuals. Uh, in my group, I've worked for 20 years with uh, Naburu Komiyama, who joined my lab as a postdoc, a fantastic colleague. And I've got many other colleagues who've come and gone through the lab who've helped drive all of those. And I, I think it goes without saying that they've also been major figures in making all of this work happen. I really appreciate you coming back on and giving us this intense overview. I mean, it's really amazing to me as I think, you know, I was going back looking at what we've talked about over the years. And so I'm going to give my simple, my simple summary, and you can set me straight as the non, non-molecular biologist person. I think the first time we talked, you, you said something about originally wanting to identify all the proteins in the synapse. That kind of blew up, right? Yep. <laughs> because it turned out there was thousands. That's right. <laughs> and just the implication of that is huge. I remember my first impressions were, okay, synapses are not all the same. I mean, just if you just took that one scientific fact, I don't even think that's petered down into the textbooks yet, right? It hasn't. And in <laughs> fact, and, and, and you know, what's so amazing about that is it's such a simple thing. And you ask yourself the question, why didn't we pay more attention to this before? And the answer is probably because we had something else to do. But this was kind of staring you in the face. Every textbook and every article loves to say, oh, there's a million billion synapses. But what they don't say in the follow-up sentence is, and by the way, they might all be different. And that is a kind of a mind-blowing thing. Yeah. And have you had a chance to talk to Eve Martyr? Um, not about this, no. I mean, I'm just wondering, in a way, her work reminds me of yours in the sense that she's basically shown that you can't say all animals are the same. Different circuits can realize the same outputs. But I'm wondering, what would be the impact of realizing that the invertebrate synapse is significantly different? There's a really interesting little problem that I've written about here. And I just want to go back to something really very, very fundamental. And it is, if we go back to the time of Sherrington, who was the man who coined the word synapse. Sherrington was an electrophysiologist. He wrote in his book, The Integrative Action of, or Function of the Nervous System, I think it was published in 1906. He saw the brain as an enchanted loom, was the way he described it. I don't think anybody knows what a loom is these days. <laughs> anyway, but um, he described the shuttle shooting back and forth and, you know, weaving this... Uh, this sort of fabric, and, he's, and, and the loom and the shooting back and forth, or the or the, the spindle, or whatever that thing is called, is a um, a sort of a metaphor for the electrical activity going through the brain. And he shared the Nobel Prize in 1932 with E. D. Adrian from Cambridge University, and E. D. Adrian's contribution is, in my mind, really the most 
single most fascinating observation, which again is so simple. And it is that information is encoded in the pattern of action potentials. That is the sort of universal language of the nervous system. That fact is linked to synapse diversity. And I just want to underscore this point. Imagine now that all of those synapses in the brain are different from one another and that every single one of them, because of its different molecular composition, is capable of detecting and discriminating a little pattern of activity. In one second, one second of action potentials, there is, if you imagine an action potential can come at the rate of every 10 milliseconds, well, in one second, you could therefore have 100 action potentials and action potentials are binary. So that means you could either have one or not every 10 milliseconds. So overall, you'd have two to the 100 power of different one second long patterns of activity. That number, I think, is about 10 to the power of 30. Now, there's only 10 to the 14 or 15 synapses in the brain. So what I'm trying to say to you is that we have uh, molecularity and synapse diversity is an ideal system for being able to detect and discriminate patterns of nerve cell activity. And by having great synapse diversity in the brain, gives you the capacity to interpret more information about your environment. The more diversity you have, greater capacity to detect and discriminate these patterns of activity, gives you the capacity to think and respond or perhaps even be conscious about the outside world. And therefore, I think synapse diversity is going to be really profoundly important for getting into that. And the beautiful thing about it is that you can then simply explain it at the level of the genome. Um, in other words, simple molecular rules build synapse diversity, give you the capacity to have all of these wonderful different behaviours. And that I find really a, an appealing and a simple concept. Wow, when you put it that way, it makes me think that that could have implications for the prospect of creating artificial um, consciousness, not intelligence consciousness, because, you know, no computer has synapse diversity. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting point you raise. I have met numerous people who are experts in um, building computers based on neural principles. As interesting as I find their presentations, they typically have built the, on principles that are several decades out of date. <laughs> uh, typically, they have no, there's no concept of the molecular organization. They, it's based on a few electrophysiological parameters that are known about neurons. It's, it comes from the era of cells and electrophysiology. It's you know pre-1990s sort of stuff. I think that there's fantastic opportunities for new generations of innovative computational scientists and computer engineers to actually build computers based on some of the principles that I've been talking about today. Well, Seth, you have given us a lot to think about and what are you going to do next? Where are you headed? We're, again, focusing on very basic principles. We are looking into some new and intriguing questions about how synapses, the proteins are in there built and how they turn over and how frequently they get restructured. There's potentially some interesting stories there. But we're, we've got a lot more to do on understanding the synaptome architecture and the lifespan synaptome architecture 
because we've now got a whole new way to look at brain age at every age. And I think there's key genetic principles defined there, which will help explain why different diseases target different synapses and different circuits at different ages. And that is an absolutely crucial and critical question that genetics alone cannot answer. If you inherit a mutation for some given disease, it doesn't tell you, it almost tells you nothing about where in the brain it's going to work and when, in particular when, it doesn't tell you. After all, if you have the mutation since you're an embryo, why does it turn out that for many disorders, they have an adult onset? Why is that? Well, the lifespan synaptome architecture is ideally poised to um, address that particular issue. Yeah, and for a lot of genetic mutations, it only tells you you have an increased risk. It doesn't even tell you that you will get the disease. That's right. So um, that's where I think there's a kind of an intersection between understanding how a mutation works and these deep and fascinating biological programs such as the lifespan synaptome architecture. And we've already got evidence in the lab that mutations influence the synaptome architecture in a spatial and temporal way at different ages. I think that's going to be an important principle. Now, I didn't ask you for advice for students because you've been on the show so many times, and I've asked you that question at least three times. But when I listen to you talk about these exciting discoveries, the first thing that comes to my mind is how do you narrow down what questions you're going to try to answer? I mean, do you guys in your lab, you know, the people you work with, you like sit down and brainstorm and say, hey, well, now that we figured out this surprising thing, it's like every surprise you've discovered has the potential for 100 plus questions of its own, right? Yeah, that's the beauty of it. I always love finding something I didn't expect to find. And they're always the most intriguing things. In fact, I often get a bit suspicious when I see things that look like exactly what you expect to find. Quite a critical eye for that kind of thing. I think the key way I approach this problem of what scientific problems to take on is always to try to focus attention on really fundamental questions as much as possible. By doing that, you're really, uh, you really get to the very basic questions about how behavior works. And that's, after all, what the objective is. It is to understand behavior at the most fundamental and molecular level, linked through to genome and ultimately through genome evolution, because that will then lead to a sort of a unifying theory about behavior, something that doesn't exist at the present time. As much in the way fundamental physics has, you know, or basic physics of fundamental particles and all of that, has contributed to our understanding of the physical world. If we do not understand the nervous system at this very basic level, then we're never going to understand behavior. And I just want to say something else which might be interesting for some of the some of the students or listeners to this. And it's a kind of a strategy that may not be obvious. One of the approaches that has been promoted greatly over the last century is sort of loosely described as top-down. And in essence, what that follows is the scientist says, look, I'm interested in this particular behavior, whatever it is. And then they say, now we're going to have a look in the part of the brain, the anatomy, and say, where does it happen? And by looking at a lesion or a perturbation or an optogenetic manipulation or something. And then they'll say, I'll find the cells that are involved. And then I'll look in the cells and I'll find some molecules. And I'll play around with the molecules and I'll show that they're involved with the behavior. And therefore, I found a molecular mechanism for that behavior and a cellular mechanism. 
that's fine. That actually works very well. And there's been a huge amount of success in that general direction. There's another way to go. And that is to say, let's understand how the brain is actually built from its most fundamental components, the genes and the proteins, and how it's all genetically encoded and regulated. And then say, well, if it's built like this, what can it do? This sort of bottom-up approach, I think, has ultimately far more power than the top-down approach because it has the ability to generalize. And a good example of that, I think, is by saying, well, what is the synapse made of? If we want to understand synapses, why don't we just find out what the proteins are that are in there? It's a very simple kind of logic, nothing too clever. And then you find the proteins and you say, oh, wow, they're actually involved with more than 100 brain diseases. Whereas if the other approach, the top-down approach, you'd be lucky to find one molecule involved with one brain disease. And so the bottom-up approach, I think, is really very important. And I think this lifespan synaptome architecture, it's clearly going to be important for you know, a very large number of different brain diseases. No question about it. So I'm a strong advocate of that type of approach. And uh, there's not a lot of that sort of approach going on. Some of that is driven by the whole you've got to justify the long-term benefit of your research. That's just hard to predict. I mean, we need basic science because you don't know. Take virology, for example. Yes, of course. <laughs> so thank you. That that was a great point. And I was thinking as you were talking that from the bottom-up approach, you also aren't starting out with so many preconceived notions of where you're going to end up. That's a fascinating point you raise. And uh, one of my... Uh, real lessons in life has been that so many of the preconceived models, which if you go to look at them carefully, they are really not well-founded. I'm just writing a paper at the moment, which may well be a bit controversial. And it's based on our work on synapse diversity. And here is the, and I'll just give you an extra moment on this one. Electrophysiology and its relationship to behavior has been of intense interest for about a century. And there are many, many theories that relate synapse physiology to behavior. Probably the most famous one is the models of learning and memory and Hebb's model and so on, which is essentially, and Cajal originally first spoke about it in the 1890s, which is that long-term memory could be stored in the stable long-term strength of synapses. It's a beautiful idea because it just seems to make sense on first examination. The problem is that many experiments that have gone to look at that, electrophysiological experiments, have involved making recordings from nerve cells, and the recordings they've made from the nerve cells do not record from individual synapses. They record from large populations of synapses. And the assumption has always been in those studies that those synapses are kind of the same, they're homogeneous, they're uniform. But that's not what we're seeing now. The molecular data says that's not the case those synapses are actually very diverse. And so when you measure the electrophysiological properties of a diverse set of synapses, and you stimulate that diverse population of synapses, you don't know what each and every one of those different synapses are doing. Some of them might be getting stronger, some of them might be getting weaker. You just don't know. And the population recording simply doesn't tell you that. And there is a huge amount of information out in the literature over the last several decades, which is all based on population measurements of synapses. And I think that literature is going to have to be reevaluated by new methods that have yet to be devised, 
which allow us to look at the physiology of individual synapses and at the same time look at the molecular composition of those synapses so that we know what type of synapse we're looking at. And I think a lot of these models that are around and a lot of the problems with those models can be reconciled by understanding synapse diversity. And until we look at it at single synapse resolution, I think the value and the interpretation and the validity of those models needs to be put on hold. That makes a lot of sense. I think we um, have given us everybody a lot of, of food for thought. I will look forward to talking to you again in another year or so, hopefully. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Ginger, and I've very much enjoyed the opportunity to have had uh, more than one interview with you, and one day I may even go back and listen to them all myself. (laughs) (laughs) It was great getting to talk with Seth Grant again. Before I review the key ideas, I need to make a couple of announcements that I don't want you to miss. First, I want to announce the date of the live webinar I promised several months ago when I released the second edition of my book, Are You Sure? The Unconscious Origins of Certainty. This live webinar is entitled Embracing Uncertainty, How to Thrive in Uncertain Times. It will be held on November 17th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. If you bought a copy of Are You Sure? during June 2020, you are automatically eligible to attend. All you have to do is send a screenshot of your receipt to me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to those of you who bought Are You Sure? on June 16th, it was the number one new book in neuroscience titles for several days. But I know that many of you were not able to buy the book in June, and I hope you might still want to attend the webinar. There are two additional ways that you can become part of November's live event and also have access to the video, whether or not you come to the live event. First, you can post a review on Amazon, Goodreads, or a similar site and send me a screenshot. Or you can sign up as a Patreon supporter for $10 a month or more. This webinar will be added to the transcripts and ad-free content that this tier already provides. And if you are already a Patreon supporter at $10 a month, you will automatically get an invitation to this webinar. To learn more, just go to patreon.com forward slash docartemis. The other thing I want to mention is that I'm going to start creating compilations of episodes based on topics, and I would love your feedback about which episodes you would like to see included. The first one is going to be a compilation of all five episodes featuring Seth Grant. So I'll tell you more about that in just a minute. So for the key ideas of today's episode, summarizing an episode as dense as this one presents a significant challenge. I have to admit that my first effort was rather long-winded, so instead I'm going to try to focus on a short list of the ideas that fundamentally change our understanding of how the brain works. First, it's important to understand that proteins like dopamine act as messengers even in unicellular organisms. They predate the evolution of both neurons and brains. 
Early on, Seth Grant sent out to determine the protein structure of the postsynaptic side of the synapse, which is to say the membrane on the receiving side of the synapse. And just for those of you who don't know, the synapse is the place where one neuron communicates with the next. So he discovered that there are over a thousand different proteins present in the synapse, and this was a huge surprise. They actually thought that it was going to be about a hundred times less than that. So not only is the synapse more complex than expected, this complexity appears to have predated the appearance of brains. Another key idea is that the vertebrate synapse is much more complex than that of invertebrates. While the difference between the synapse of mice and humans is much less because they're both mammals. Once the complexity became apparent, Grant shifted his work to exploring the complexity more carefully. This led to several more surprises. Gene expression in the brain actually changes throughout the lifespan. That might seem a little bit obvious in retrospect, but it was not known. And even in a single brain, synapses are incredibly diverse. Certain parts of the brain appear to have more complex synapses than others. The role of the synapse is likely more complex than previously imagined. It's more than just a place where electrical signals pass from one neuron to another. So let's take it down to a few key take-home points. Number one, the synapse complexity happened before the evolution of brains and complex nervous systems. Next, the increased complexity of vertebrates appears to have originated with a double duplication of the genome during the Cambrian explosion. Vertebrate synapses are more complex than invertebrates. Under this, I would list that mice and humans have similar but not identical synapses. They do share key genes, which is what makes it possible to study possible disease mechanisms by manipulating transgenic mice. Next idea. Gene expression in the brain changes in a predictable way throughout the lifespan. And this may be the reason why certain diseases appear at certain ages. Finally, synapse complexity also varies according to brain area. And it appears that areas associated with so-called higher functions are more complex and diverse. Synapse complexity and diversity has many implications. It could be a key to understanding and treating diseases like schizophrenia. But it also means that results must be extrapolated with care. For example, if you're doing an experiment in an invertebrate, you have to be careful about extrapolating to vertebrates or even to humans. Also, the age of the organism matters, which is something that was not appreciated before. And then there are even individual differences between animals or people of the same species. And this is something that Eve Martyr has already been pointing out with her work with the uh, lobster. Now, molecular biology does provide some tools for dealing with these challenges of extrapolation. 
it's possible to compare the genes between animals. And so we know which genes have stayed the same and which ones have changed. And so we can take a gene in humans that we know is associated with an illness and look for that particular gene, say in, in a mouse, to do um, experiment to see what happens. So, sorry, I guess that was still a little long-winded, right? So I'm going to try to narrow it down to three take-home ideas. Number one, synapses are more complex than most people including scientists, realize. Two, this complexity began before brains appeared, but the double duplication of the genome during the Cambrian explosion allowed vertebrates to become even more complex and diverse. Number three, even within a single brain, synapses are diverse and their complexity appears to mirror their function. Finally, as Seth Grant mentioned, it has long been imagined that synapses might be a key player in memory, and this surprising diversity might be a clue to how memories are formed at a fundamental level. I can't wait to see what will be discovered next. So given the complexity of today's episode, I hope you'll check out the episode show notes and transcript at brainsciencepodcast.com. Remember that Brain Science is produced independently by me, and it relies on your financial support. To learn more, please visit brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations. Your support is greatly appreciated. And don't forget to send me email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Submit voice feedback at speakpipe.com forward slash docartemis or post to the Brain Science Podcast fan page on Facebook. The downside of having such a long-running podcast is that the amount of material I have created is becoming unwieldy, and even with a search engine on the website, I know many of you are having trouble finding what you need. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, I'm beginning a new project that involves compiling related episodes. This is going to be part of a larger project to try to make it easier for you to find information. The first compilation will include all of Dr. Grant's interviews, and I hope it will be ready by the end of October. I plan to lightly edit the transcripts and to include the audio for each episode so that you'll have everything in one place. If you have a particular guest, topic, or group of episodes you would like to see compiled, just drop me an email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Finally, Don't forget to sign up for my upcoming webinar, Embracing Uncertainty, How to Thrive in Uncertain Times, which will be on November 17th, 2020 at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Next month, I'll be talking with Dr. Bernard Bars, who is known for his pioneering global workspace theory of consciousness. Until then, I hope you will check out my other podcasts, Books and Ideas and Grain Rainbows. Thanks again for listening. I'm looking forward to talking with you again very soon. Brain Science is copyright 2020 to Virginia Campbell, MD. You can share this audio with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please email me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com.
The theme music for Brain Science is Mindfire, written and performed by Tony Catraccia. You can find his work at syncopationnow.com.